Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a writer, columnist and the director of the Free Speech Union, Inaya Falern Iman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you here. For anyone who doesn't know who you are, and we're delighted to have you on, by the way. We've been chatting about you for a while, your commentary and on the recent stuff that's been going on has been fantastic. Tell everybody who are you, how are you where you are, what has been the journey that brings you sitting to this chair here in this very hot room? Well, I, so I was, I was born in London. Um, I'm a daughter of Nigerian immigrants to the UK, but um, I was raised in a single-parent household. And my mum, she worked really, really hard to send me and my sister to kind of fee-paying schools. Then halfway through, um, I left and I went to a kind of local comprehensive school. And um, after that, went to a grammar school. And so from a really young age, I've, I guess, been exposed to various different socioeconomic aspects of British society. And that made me really interested from really young in terms of what kind of values, principles and cultures might impact and shape the way that people perceive themselves and their place within society. So that really started um, very young in terms of my interest in politics. But now, you know, through a whole range of situations, I've become um, a free speech campaigner. And I think that that really sparked, um, particularly when I went to university, I think that's where I really became radicalised. I've always been really interested in ideas. But as we've seen with this kind of free speech culture wars and campaign campus wars, um, I was really surprised to see the kind of really limiting climate in university when it came to free speech. Um, one event in particular, I think, is what really sparked my interest. And there was this whole movement at my university in regards to why is my curriculum white? Decolonize the curriculum. Mm. And I think it's a really interesting movement in terms of broadening our understanding of the kind of way in which race relations came to be in the UK. But what I found at university, it was one particular narrative. And I posed the question of whether or not this was useful. And I received a huge, huge backlash at university. And then I started a series of kind of free speech debates on campus. And again, there was so much controversy um, and, and kind of ridicule in relation to these free speech conversations, which I understood was essentially the fundamental bedrock of our democracy. And how do we kind of move forward in terms of conversations about race and progress within society if we aren't able to even understand the, the very foundation of our democracy. And so that's kind of where, particularly at university, where I really became interested in this conversation about free speech. And that's kind of brought me on to conversations about identity politics, agency, um, democracy, and, and things like that. And so you also work for the Free Speech Union with Toby Young. Why yeah. is it that we need a free speech union? Because don't we live in a liberal democracy? Can't I go and say whatever I feel without repercussion? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really astonishing how, um, how little I found um, that people genuinely understand free speech. I mean, the conversation, particularly right now about free speech, is often framed in relation to hate and spreading mm. hate and how it's kind of somehow um, in contradiction to the pursuit of liberation of minorities. When I often understand, understood it as free speech is almost is very nature to protect minorities. You know, you don't need free speech if you are necessarily the majority because you're backed up by power and privilege. It is the views of the minority, whether that's, you know, religious or ethnic or otherwise, um, where kind of free speech um, is so important. And so for me, um, again, that's why I kind of became really interested in it again, because I'm told because of my identity, because I'm a black woman, this, that and the other, that um, I'm meant to have a particular worldview and a particular attitude. And I found that, you know, free speech is actually so fundamental to pursuing um, transformational change within society. And so, again, I felt that 
I had a kind of moral obligation to be part of reshaping and redefining the free speech conversation in the UK. And that's kind of why um, I got involved in um, the Free Speech Union. And we're recording this at a quite interesting cultural moment, to say the very <laughs> least. Uh, the things seem to be really kicking off. Um, and I thought that the issue with free speech, as you know, and you know we've talked in the past, uh, the issue with free speech has been there for some time now, as you talk about, you know, at university when you were there. Mm -hmm. But uh, am I right in thinking that it seems to, you know, I I don't think the last few weeks have made it better, have they? I mean, it's really been astonishing. Again, the racial conversation is not necessarily one that has interested me from my upbringing. Um, Well, why not? Because we're told that all black people are oppressed. (laughs) You know, you you experience racism on a daily basis. And look, of course there's racism. I've experienced racism. You know, you haven't probably. No, no, mate. Not with this voice. (laughs) I give racism, not experience. (laughs) (laughs) You're just just too pink for racism. That's where you are. But, you know, look, of course there are racist people in the world, right? So how is it that, you know, you've managed to avoid this conversation you know, you've managed to grow up, to to go through university, to to get a job, to to be a prominent, uh, you know, speaker on these issues uh, and and a commentator in in our public society, without becoming embroiled in this in this racial way of thinking. Why are you so different? Well, it, it's really interesting, and you know, I started off with my upbringing. I think that that is really what has shaped me. You know, despite on paper, you know, my mom came to this country as an immigrant, all of these types of things. We didn't grow up necessarily rich. But from such a young age, I was inculcated with this view that, you know, you can achieve whatever you want. You know, the the sky's the limit. And I never had all of these kind of racial hang ups. And so that never became how I perceived myself in the world and and how, you know, what my potentials were defined by. And so I never thought that, um, you know, that is necessarily the kind of way in which that I should necessarily engage in politics. But it's become really important now because I've been so worried about the deeply, what I would argue is disempowering and demoralizing message that we are sending to a whole generation of young people that are living in a society that has made leaps and bounds when it comes to race relations, not just in the last 30 or 40 years, but in the last 10 years. There's so many schemes, programs, um, drives to increase representation. And all of a sudden, at the point where I would argue, we can actually say, yes, there's more to be done. But perhaps in all the things that have happened in the last 20 years, the race relations situation, I would argue, is one of the few things that we have triumphed and achieved. And at this very moment, we are now being told that our society couldn't be more racist, more sexist, this cesspool. And so I find it really dangerous, this narrative that is being told. And there's many studies that have actually kind of come out as well that are confirming just the actual corrosive nature of this particular narrative. So there's been, you know, studies that have come out which show that, for example, black um, men in particular, but black people are more likely to be in high security mental health institutions if they have contact with um, mental health services. And many people think, oh, that's an example of institutional racism. Well, actually, when it's being investigated further, what we're finding is that this narrative about um, the system being against you makes people interact with that system differently and perceive that, you know, a lack of trust and a lack of kind of cohesive relationship with that institution, which makes them more likely to resist. Um, Similar with the kind of stigma that um, exists in regards to mental health in many of these kind of um, ethnic minority communities. On top of that, we've seen it with regards to the justice system and the prison system. Many people, for example, are less likely to plead guilty for crimes that because Um, they are mistrusting of their lawyers and things like that. So what we're actually finding in a lot of these situations, this particular narrative about Britain being institutionally and structured in a racist way is actually um, producing a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. And I think that 
that's, as I said, a really demoralizing message to send to young people. And that's why, you know, I in some ways use myself as an example of despite all of these things on paper, you know, I've been able to achieve that. And absolutely racism exists, but there's much more to the story than what I think is being told. And why is it that we don't challenge the narrative? So you've just put forward a reason as to why these things exist, why the stats are where they are. But why is it that we don't challenge the narrative that is happening right the way through social media and so on? I think there are quite a few reasons for that. I think that there are ideological reasons in terms of what well, I would argue um, many of the uh, philosophies that underpin the worldviews that are shaping our society today. So those are things like intersectionality, critical race theory. So, for example, in critical race theory, it, it, it's framed that racism permeates every single aspect of our life. So there's almost nothing that we can do about it. And that's very much shaping the conversation about racism in academia. And I think that that's very much filtering off to every other aspect of society. But on top of that, there's an entire industry now that um, in some ways has a vested interest in perpetuating this narrative. And I think this is quite a sensitive topic, but I definitely think it needs to be said. You know, I've spoken about, you know, every HR department having an equality, diversity and equity officer. Um, there are many whole um, organisations now that have that are solely kind of invested in this particular narrative about racism existing and in a, in a really deep and profound way. And yes, it does exist, but this, there's a whole kind of structure within society that now um, are embedded in perpetuating this particular narrative. You have whole academic fields about, you know, race racism in Britain. And I think that um, there's not many people um, that feel comfortable to be able to kind of challenge that when it's become so embedded and permeating um, in the climate that we have. But on top of that, I think there is a kind of overcorrection. I think that many people are genuinely well-meaning. Mm. They're hearing um, black people saying that, um, you know, the way this is the way that society is. And so obviously, as we want to care about um, individuals that are you know, making these claims about society, it, it, it's... Um, our, our intention is obviously want to to believe that and to alleviate that. But I think that there is genuinely a problem um, in kind of accepting this whole narrative wholesale. So one of the things that has really emerged recently is this whole idea that you as a white person or you as a this person can never really understand um, me as a black woman. Or Listen something. to this bit. <laughs> this, is for you, mate. This, this is for you, mate. Yeah. And, and I think this is an incredibly pernicious idea. Mm. I actually think that this um, is so destructive because... It, it unpacks and, and kind of removes the very basis of this whole idea of universalism and humanism, that what even though we might have different experiences, what we share is our common humanity and we all feel alienation. We might all feel, you know, trauma, but ultimately we all experience those things. And so we can put ourselves in other people's shoes. And from my experience, again, it doesn't resonate with what I've experienced. Some of the most profound and interesting conversations I've had about race have been with people of other races. Mm. And so, I think that we really have to challenge this idea that, you know, someone's subjective experience um, is the only valid way of understanding the world around us. We have to defend this notion of an objective truth. We have to defend that there are things that we can find out and research and look at the complexities of why that situation is and accept that we can all understand that as human beings and not let just one section of society be able to define um, what 
specific aspects mean. See, this is where I would agree with with what you're saying in the sense that I think that's the right way to go. Mm. But I wonder whether we've just gone too far in the other direction that it's not possible any longer. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, our, uh, a friend of ours who watched our interview with Aisha Kambi, who you know, uh, I sent it to, to a friend of his and his friend said, yeah, I really enjoyed it because she was a black woman talking about her experience. You're shaking your head <laughs> in disgust. Uh, but, but you know what I mean? Like the majority of people have been in calc- you know, indoctrinated with this idea that that is how we think. And I'll be honest with you, I think, you know, us, we, we've been indoctrinated with it as well. Like, I haven't. I'm very woke. No, <laughs> I don't know about that, mate. Like, I wonder whether, let's be honest, if Aisha was white, or if you were white, we would have you as readily on our show as we do when you're not white. Mm. Do, you, do you see what I'm saying? No, I, I do understand that. And obviously there is some validity to the notion that, you know, being obviously of a particular race, and if you're having a conversation about things that affect that race, then they're going to be more invested in that particular conversation. But it's but it's more than that, I think. There's one thing kind of listening to other people, but there's another thing as homogenizing them or becoming a kind of spokesperson. And that's one of the things, again, that I think um, has been quite toxic. I've seen essentially um, a kind of concerted effort to create an all-encompassing mythology about what it means to be black in the world today, but particularly Britain, and essentializing that narrative to be one of racism, oppression, and victimhood. And the problem with this kind of homogenous view is then when you have ethnic minorities, you know, Minira Merza, myself, other people that um, don't experience or don't feel that this particular narrative um, speaks to what they've experienced, then we are then, you know, framed as the other. And so ultimately, we need to be able to say, you know, you are speaking for yourself as an individual. And, and, and what our individual experience is ultimately what is important and not be solely defined by these categories. And why do you think the debate is so toxic? Because it's not just toxic when, you know, people come out and talk about their own experiences. It's toxic within, for instance, the black community. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. But, you know, somebody like you says their experience and, you, you know, then you get other people using racist language against you. And you think, why is it that we can't have a simple, honest discussion on these matters? I think that a lot of people are really kind of... So So if you create, as I said, this all-encompassing narrative about what it means to be black and you inculcate that to a whole generation of young people, then their entire identity is then invested in that particular worldview. And so to challenge that becomes more than just kind of having an, an open, honest conversation. It becomes about essentially challenging how they perceive themselves. Uh, and I think that that seems to make people really uncomfortable at a fundamental level. And that's why I think that it, it, it's really important now to try and really unpack these essentially fact-free stories yeah. that are being perpetuated. Or we're going to have a whole group of people that define their entire identity by this kind of victim grievance narrative and, and internalize that. And then again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because people start to have a chip on their shoulder. People start to perceive the world around them differently. And again, it's really interesting because I know this from experience. I grew up in a relatively conservative household, but for a very short period of time, um, I was really interested in these woke ideas and um, I started spending a lot of time with people that perpetuated them and I saw how it actually changed me and that was really interesting I think that's one of the reasons why I think I'm quite passionate about it is that you know I started to see um, you know into all normal interactions with people as perhaps um, prejudicial 
or like that people were, you know, judging me based off of my race. And that society itself was structured against me and that almost there was nothing that they can, I could do about it. And this is some of the things that are being told and people do believe. And I think that that massively changes what you believe is possible for yourself. So I think that we have to separate um, people's, as, as I said before, subjective judgments with what the facts of the matter is. And that's why I'm so adamant about telling the truth about what the situation is. So some of the things that have been said is, um, you know, all these different aspects of society, this notion of systemic racism. Mm. But when you actually unpack many of these concepts and the different layers of society, the picture is much more complex. So let's take, for example, education. The situation for British Nigerian children is almost completely different to the situation for British Jamaican children. Oh, yeah, you guys are smashing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look how proud she is. Yeah, West Africa, I used to be a teacher. West African girls are one of the highest achieving subgroups in, in all of education. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, yeah, exactly. Higher than the average in the, in the country. Mm. But the situation is different for British Caribbean boys. So why is that? That can't be solely down to systemic racism because we have disparities, quite significant disparities amongst ethnic groups and BME ethnic groups themselves. Um, similarly, you know, with British Indian people and British Chinese um, people are actually have a higher average earning than the white British population. Not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to clip that. that that's going to be you telling a black woman you're not happy about minorities doing well. It's going to make for a great clip for that. And you're getting cancelled. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is just, it kind of just proves then that there is so, so much more to the conversation. And so people are jumping mm. on this mm. simplistic narrative. Yeah. Um, and what it's doing is, you know, having these very blanket, one-size-fits-all solutions, which... Um, are ultimately counterproductive. And so what I'm really interested in is what is not being talked about in this conversation. You know, we all talk about racism and all of these types mm. of things, but very few people are talking about notions of agency, culture, personal responsibility, and class. And I think these are quite a complex assortment of factors that are massively, if not predominantly, shaping social outcomes in this country. Don't you think part of the problem is that people go, oh, you know, black people, when the reality is, you know, African and Caribbean are completely different. They're different culturally, different in the way they see the world. They have different values. And not just that, you know, Africa is a very large continent. So somebody who is from Mali is going to be essentially very, very different to someone who is Moroccan. Yeah, so I think um, the, the kind of differences within um, black groups, is I, re I think, is a really interesting one. So, for example, um, particularly people from West Africa, mm. most of them are not actually descendants from slaves, for mm. example. And I think that's quite a big distinction between the Caribbean community. And I think some of the legacies in terms of even internalised racism and different issues related to that also um, play a part in... The, the kind of relationship between how they you know, perceive themselves and you know, their relationship with Britain. Um, for example, Caribbean predominantly came to Britain decades before uh, many of the kind of Ghanaian and Nigerian migrants. There are still some very strong kind of rooted values in terms of conservatism that permeate many people um, of African heritage in Britain. So I think that these kinds of, these kinds of things that are shaping the, um, the the relationship between race and kind of social outcomes in this country are massively being being missed. So in some ways, and I'm, I don't want to put these words in your mouth, but I'm just curious to explore this. Let's say a first generation Ghanaian mm. might have more in common with a first generation Russian immigrant than they might do with a, a British born 
a Caribbean person. Is that kind of... Yeah, no, exactly. I, I do think that that is the case. And so that's why I think this kind of blanket systemic racism, institutional racism argument is missing these kinds of nuances um, and complexities of the situation. And on top of that, what's really interesting, you know, I, I kind of touched on this notion of agency and personal responsibility, something that I would really like to explore further. Again, it's quite a sensitive topic, but there's a culture within particularly some communities um, predominantly black communities of this whole notion of like you're acting white mm -hmm. and I actually think that um, some of that actually seems to me to have some connections with this whole Uncle Tom culture that we're seeing you know uh, you know you you're you're a coon all these kinds of things and I just define a few of those things for people who may be less familiar like we're obviously mm. all very versed in mm. this stuff but first of all what does it mean to be acting white and then talk to us about the whole Uncle Tom phenomenon as yeah well, so I think it's you know I think it, it seems to happen less once when, when people leave school but I think it's something that I've seen a lot among school kids you know black kids that might be non-conformist or um, interested in can traditionally white type of things like people say maybe rock music despite the fact that that has often origins as well in like Jimi Hendrix mm. and things like that but things like that um a lot of young kids have said oh you're you're acting white um and, and I think that that um can actually shape um the perception of what black culture is to young people and I think that when they think of what it means to be black in Britain um contributed by the community itself is often a very narrow perception of what blackness actually is. And I think that um, these types of things also have a massive contributing factor into the way blackness is then represented in the wider society. And I think that that's really something that has nothing necessarily to do with white people or whiteness. And that's why I think this conversation needs to be much more internal and reflective in regards to what are we doing as individuals within our own community, so to speak, to perpetuate certain um, ideas and beliefs and behaviours that could be limiting the way that we um, perceive our potential? Mm. So, yeah. And then talk to us about the whole Uncle Tom thing as well. Yeah, I think um, particularly in the last few months, this has been something that I've seen um, grow at a really exponential rate. You know, we've seen it with kind of Priti Patel, Rishi Sunak, or even other um, ethnic minority people that have become really successful, do not perceive themselves or as oppressed or victimized, but acknowledge racism exists, but don't feel that they are defined by it, are, are claimed to be somehow agents of, of white supremacy or, or, or agents of perpetuating, you know, a racist system. And again, I think it's, it's such a limiting perception um, of, of what it means to be any of these different groups, because from my understanding, at least, integration or at least progress to me would be seeing intellectual diversity, ideological diversity amongst all of these different people, that they're no longer solely um, political based off of their race alone, that their, their political interests are defined by so much more than that. And so what I'm finding now, the strongest perpetuators of these kind of very rigid stereotypes, these limiting stereotypes, is not coming from the kind of traditional far right um, kind of white racist. It's, it's coming from this section of the woke left in particular that have a very narrow perception of of ethnic minorities and it's not just a narrow perception it's an actual denial of you know a lot of these ethnic minorities are socially conservative mm. because they're first generation immigrants mm. no I, it is really interesting and you know i hope that going forward as we have more of these conversations 
um, more and more people will see that actually, you know, the left isn't necessarily the natural home. Now, I don't actually identify as necessarily on the left or the right, but I do think um, a lot of the conservative values that many immigrant communities do grow up in do seem to find a stronger place in kind of conservatism more broadly. And I really hope that um, as this kind of conversation progresses, we can see far more intellectual and ideological diversity and political experimentation amongst um, ethnic minority communities. All right, well, that concludes about 20-minute section of the interview where I massively derailed you uh, <laughs> from talking about the free speech union and what's happening now. And uh, let's go back to that because I do think it's important. Mm. The question I asked you at the very beginning was, do you think things have got better with free speech or that they've got worse in the last few weeks with everything that's been going on? I think that it's massively got worse. And I don't say that lightly. And, and I, not only do I you know, think it's got worse, I think it's incredibly dangerous the place that we're in hmm. we are talking about um particularly from the black lives matter narrative in particular asking they're calling for quite significant transformational changes of our society and none of this can potentially none of this can possibly happen in a positive way if we are not embedded in an existing social climate which pe where people feel able to come forward to challenge to to um, engage in constructive discourse and and tell the truth about what they feel you know people I'm seeing a feeling compelled to lie. Many people have emailed me and come to me telling me, you know, that you know, their friends are going to leave them if they don't put a black square or say Black Lives Matter. None of these things are conducive to a constructive and positive forward facing vision. You know, I, I want people to tell the truth. I want people to tell me when I'm wrong. And actually free speech right now is massively in decline. And, and, and not just from a kind of... Um, you know, traditional conception of free speech in relation to conversation, but but even the, the way in which we are um, conceiving of our own history, we are seeing this kind of very one-dimensional, overly negative characterization of Britain and British history, which is then shaping, again, what I've said before, this the way in which people are perceiving themselves. And I think that um, freedom of speech, as I said, is, is just so important in regards to obviously the pursuit of higher meaning and truth. Um, you know, the, the basis of free speech is also this whole idea of obviously as in a democracy, we all have equal power and shape to be able to shape our society. And, you know, free speech is the, the mechanism to which we can really understand each other. And if we don't um, really start to defend it and protecting it in a meaningful way, I, I think that we are we're in kind of really dangerous territory. It's interesting you say, you know, we're in dangerous territory because thank the Lord that I'm not involved in a corporate environment anymore. But I could imagine especially, you know, with the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you have any sort of qualms about this particular movement or the notion of white privilege, you dare not say it aloud in a corporate environment. What I find really interesting, and I've written about this um, slightly, is the way in which corporations have been so um, accepting of the Black Lives Matter narrative. And I think a lot of people within Black Lives Matter think that they're really radical and think that they're kind of challenging power structures. But actually, that the kind of the way in which corporations have been so part and parcel of this process, to me, is a really interesting um, development in regards to how corporations and just the, the powers that be, the kind of political, cultural and media establishment, don't actually see Black Lives Matter as a threat. And I think that that's because many of the... And things that are being pushed forward by Black Lives Matter are actually incredibly divisive. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is very much this divide and rule game that um, 
I would argue, um, undermines solidarity amongst working class people across races. And so people are kind of fighting amongst themselves instead of seeing the kind of broader question about the way in which the structures within our society are um, increasing social injustice and extreme economic inequality inequality for all people, Mm. not just um, black people. And so it suits um, the corporate kind of ideology very well, but not just because of that, but also because it means that they can engage in very superficial gestures of, you know, putting a black square, saying down to white supremacy, all of these types of things. But the genuinely meaningful, um, horrific wrongs that are going on in the present day, perpetuated by many of the kind of um, corporate interests, get ignored by just so that so instead they can just put these kind of very simplistic, um, superficial gestures and, you know, they get their woke, woke points for that. And so I think that I find it very interesting that, that that wokeness as an ideology seems very comfortable within the corporate realm. And I think that that tells us very much about, you know, if it's really challenging anything meaningful. In other words, a big company can, um, you know, put the black square, give some money to Black Lives Matter while employing people, paying them minimum wage in horrible conditions of all colors exactly. because they're too busy you know, engaged in this protest or in this movement as opposed to campaigning for their right to actually be paid better or to have better working conditions. Is that what you're saying? No, exactly. I mean, it leads to fascinating examples. It's just ridiculous. So, you know, you had Pep Guardiola, the Manchester City manager, coming out and talk about slavery whilst being bankrolled by Abu Dhabi. Mm. And you just think, I mean, is this... And no one brings it up. Well, you know, this whole thing about slavery, you know, I think it's, again, another really worrying trend Everybody in our society, I think there's almost unanimity Mm. about, you know, that slavery and the things that went on in the past were horrific wrongs. No one really defends that, but we cannot be bound by our history. You know, the human story is complex, it's multifaceted. It's a story of triumph, conquest, pain and courage. And that's, you know, a traumatic one, but also a beautiful one. At some point, we've got to be able to recognise that we have to take responsibility for our lives in the present day. And I'm also worried about this really one-dimensional narrative about slavery. Again, slavery was and is a completely horrific thing. But also, for example, working-class white people in Britain um, suffered indentured servitude and horrific conditions. And so black people don't have a monopoly on oppression. They don't have a monopoly on suffering. And I think that, again, framing just the black identity solely based off of these really negative characteristics will only weigh people down. And I think there isn't just one idea of, as I said, what blackness is, what progress looks like, how do we get there? We've got to really platform the vast range of intellectual and ideological diversity that exists amongst the black population, but start focusing on the positive, focusing on the future, because you know people can't be weighed down by these um, horrific things that happened in history. Um, do you want to go? I was going to say, you, you know, you talk about the importance of being able to have this free conversation, but we've, we've seen, and I know that this is something the Free Speech Union cares about and, and is, is working on. We've seen people who've, uh, and I saw the transcript. Initially, you know, when you see these news reports, they never tell you what actually happened. Have you noticed mm. this lately? Mm. Like when they talk about a case where somebody said something they weren't supposed to say and then they got fired. They never actually give you the information about what that person said. Mm. You know, someone gets to, uh, removed from Twitter. You never find out why, right? Because when you do, this guy on, is it Isle of Wight, uh, this, this presenter? Yes, yeah, the radio. the radio presenter, absolutely. Right. So he had what seemed like a pretty reasonable conversation to me with a black caller. And he, he said to the caller, uh, actually, I'm not, you know, I haven't had any more privilege than you. Uh, and that was his opinion. 
Now, he might be right, he might be wrong. I don't know how privileged he's been. I don't know anything about him. But he was instantly removed, pending, subject to an investigation, this whole thing. So how do we have these conversations if, if the moment you question it, in your case, you become an Uncle Tom, or in, our, in, in the case of a white person who's employed, they get fired? How do, how do we talk about it? I think that we've really got to expose this particular worldview completely for what it is. There is they talk a lot about compassion and empathy. But actually, there is completely nothing empathetic or compassionate about um, assuming that particular state, listening to particular statements and then defining an entire person's worldview or belief based over those few statements or just blanketing an entire group of people. Um, there's nothing compassionate about that. I've heard stories of, for example, friends that tell me that they've, you know, they've got racist grandparents or, or yeah, and I find that really interesting. You know, my instinct is not to go, oh, these people are really evil people. I'm really interested in, you know, what, why people have these kinds of worldviews, what, what makes them think that. And I think only when we can do that, can we meaningfully address those things. But some of those things are not even, you know, necessarily motivated by a, a, a hatred or for a group of people. Some people have genuinely never come across, mm-hmm. you know, a, a black person. They've, they've been in a very insular, small community their entire life and there's various stereotypes that permeate within that community and you know so so there's many different reasons for why people come to the different conclusions that they've come to about the world and that's what we need to seek to understand I think we really have to expose um, this particular worldview for what it is I think it's really interesting even the whole definition of racism that they propagate they, they frame the definition of racism in a way for them to never be able to be racist <laughs> <laughs> it's like and even what we were talking about earlier about history you know that if you are solely defined by your history, then how can you ever be responsible for your own actions? And so the way that they frame the situation is for they can never do wrong. They can never say anything wrong or be responsible. And that gives them a green light to be able to do anything they want without any consequences. And that's not compassionate. That's not creating a better world. To create a better world, we have to go far beyond that. We have to reach across tribal lines and, and, and try and genuinely understand each other and create solutions. But on top of that, I I oppose this whole idea of white privilege. You know, again, I understand why um, people kind of say it. Um, They argue that, um, for example, white people, if they're going to be oppressed by anything, it's not going to be because of their race. But again, I think that these kinds of really simplistic narratives are really divisive. So one thing is, I think that we are all privileged and disadvantaged for a a whole host of reasons. You know, there's people that grow up poor, but they have, you know, a really strong community and family. And, you know, there's people that are rich and, you know, don't have that. There are many different things that make us who we are. And that's genuinely compassionate. That's genuinely empathy and common humanity. And on top of that, there are many white people that I've come across and spoken to that have contacted me who genuinely don't feel privileged because of their white, because of their race. You know, whether that is the fact that... Um, White working class boys have the lowest educational attainment in this country. There's been whole scandals to do with grooming gangs, which is a whole another issue in itself. The idea that um, the only form of, of the only valid form of grievance is a racial one, um, and that should be the only kind of way in which we can engage in this conversation about privilege is just frankly not true. And do you think part of the problem is that the people who are talking about things about white privilege tend to be white middle class and white upper class people? Mm. Oh, this is, you know, I think this is a really interesting point because, you know, especially with this whole conversation about Meghan Markle, for example, um, there was this whole, uh, you know, argument that she was kind of a victim of racism. And a lot of the time it's framed as kind of 
poor white working class people that have all of these bigoted attitudes. But from my experience and what I've seen, the working class in, in Britain are, are actually the most diverse group. Many, mm. Most of the interracial relationships and you know, mixed race children and all of these things are actually happening amongst working class people who have also been at the forefront of most anti-racist struggles in Britain for the last few decades. So this whole framing um, about, um, you know, you know, dividing it by race and class in this way, it just doesn't stack up to reality. And what I found is that it's often, you know, the middle class, white middle class narrative. I don't want to, again, frame it solely by race, but I just think it's interesting that um, seems to be wanting to be the kind of saviour and, and the answer to all of these issues and a, a way to kind of look down on a valid way of um, exerting prejudice on a group of people, which is kind of the white working class population. I find that very interesting. So I think that, um, again, these many of the narratives when we actually investigate them don't actually stack up to this very binary oppressor versus oppressed narrative that we are being told well i'm listening to you and it makes perfect sense to me and I, as you know i agree with with much of what you say but uh i saw a uh cnn poll i think and people some people who don't like cnn are gonna you know be upset about that but i suspect it's probably quite accurate which shows that somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of black people in this country do feel that the police treat them uh worse because they're black do feel discriminated against do think there's systemic racism so you know, either either you're wrong, or, or 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 that what you're talking about is correct, but it's not cutting through to ordinary people. How do you explain that? Yeah, I think that um, again, so people feeling that way, whether we like it or not, doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And we've got to be confident and you know feel comfortable to be able to challenge people's feelings because our feelings change and our feelings um can be wrong. And even many of the things about the kind of um, systemic racism and police brutality. Again, I believed in the past until I actually looked into it. So I think that a lot of the a lot of people haven't been confident to actually challenge what the facts are. For example, the, the BBC itself reported um, that um, in that a lot of people are talking about you know deaths in police custody. In the last ten years, 163 people have died in police custody. In ten years, 13 were black. So that's you know about one a year. And actually, by the BBC's own statistic, a white person was 25% more likely to die in police custody than a black person. So people are taking one figure, one statistic, and and not actually sh- showing the whole picture. So if we only talk about this one statistic without showing the entire context, then of course we're going to assume that people are being treated differently. Um, Another example is that, you know, ethnic minority or black people are more likely to be in poverty and this, that, the other. Well, the truth of the matter is, I think something like a third of black um, ethnic minority in this country are foreign born. So many of them come from poor countries. So you're going to come from a poor country. And obviously, oftentimes you do start at the bottom. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you're being discriminated against or systemic racism. It just means that it takes time to move up the social ladder. And those opportunities are there. And so, again, we talk about ethnic minorities in relation to crime. Well, again, being coming from a immigrant household, you're more likely to be in an impoverished community. And there's many different things that affect um, in terms of impoverishment, crime that relate to that. So that's not a lot of these things can actually just be explained and, and resolved and don't necessarily um, have anything in relation to an institutional or systemic um, racism. And. I think about always about my own upbringing. So I grew up in an area of South London which had real problems with race. The pub down my road is a BNP pub. It had an England flag flying. 
Why do you keep saying that about the England flag? You said that every time, and then all the all the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Should, Having an England flag doesn't make you. No, racist. no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't make you racist in any shape or form. However, the pub was a BNP pub, mm. and, they, and they, that's where they used to meet up, and you know, and there was assaults against Asian people, and all the rest of it. And it feels like we've made huge progress. Have we taken a step back as a result of what's been happening at the moment? So I think it's a really important point that you mentioned the BNP pub, because again, when I was saying in the beginning about race relations being perhaps one of the one things that we can triumph over, the BNP has literally collapsed as a political movement. I think Britain is one of the only countries in the West who do not have a far right force as a coherent you know, political force. That is saying something. And so I think that we are taking a regressive step. Um, and you know, it, it does pay me to say that because, as I said before, to tell a whole generation of, of young people that are living in such a, you know, there's definitely things more to be done. And I'm not going to deny that. But I personally think most of the more that needs to be done is relating to individual mentality, agency and personal responsibility. That's my opinion. But there is obviously more to be done. But then saying this, completely permeating this almost every single day is such a divisive situation. I've seen friendship groups that have been friends for decades, all of a sudden, you know, defining their friendship group on racial lines you know one friend saying oh what can I do to, to help you um you know as a black person and it, and it was never like that before they never talked about race in such a divisive way but this whole narrative and, and being permeated naturally becomes internalized as is embedded in our own culture so I think it is a regressive step I think going forward I hope that um, we are moving towards more of a colorblind society where people are not... But that's racist now. <laughs> <laughs> but th that's literally what people say. Mm. The idea of a colorblind society is racist. I keep getting people telling me that that's not what Martin Luther King meant when he said people should be judged on the content of their character. He didn't mean a colorblind society. He was a revolutionary. He wanted to overthrow the white patriarchy or whatever it is. Is that not true? No, I, I don't think that's true. And, you know, the alternative of a colorblind society would mean to sacrifice the whole idea of meritocracy. You know, we see this with um, hiring practices. It, it seems it's more likely now that you will be hired to fill a tick box in a quota, not necessarily by, you know, normal kind of competition to get a job. And so that completely undermines the idea of meritocracy. And, and that, again, creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, black kids think they're getting a job because of their race. And, you know, and, and that they didn't need to think about that before. And so I think that a colorblind society, if not what we have now, should absolutely be the goal. I would even like to see, again, this is a, you know, a, probably a more out there idea. But we talk about anti-racism. What I'd really like to see is us even thinking far more imaginatively and bigger in terms of could we even overcome race? Is that something even possible? I think that if we are serious about, you know, transforming our society to make it fairer and more just and, um, you know, freer, I think that we've really got to go beyond these artificial categories and start being far more imaginative um, in relation to how we relate to each other. Mm. And so go for it. Uh, no, no okay, so what would you what would you implement if you um... <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I, but this is the this is the real question. Like you talk about agency and responsibility. Yeah. Like, what do you think people need to do, and we as a society need to do as well to 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 overcome this? Yeah. So there's a few things. Um, Obviously, there's top-down, top-level things and bottom-level things. From the top-level thing, I think that the, you know, we need to stop um, continually perpetuating this idea that Britain is this society. I think we need to 
be completely confident in saying that we are not this society. You know, it's imperfect, but we, we are um, a positive, forward, tolerant country. And But there is absolutely more that we can do. And we stand united all as British people, whether wherever we come from. But we are all here together as British people. So from the top level, I'd love to see far more kind of moral and political leadership in not being so cowardly in the mm. face of these movements. And I think that that would be really, really strong. She's talking about Boris Johnson. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's part of the problem. Many of these people think they can get away with it because there's no pushback. Mm. And so there's got to be something on the top level. But from the bottom up, I think that we absolutely need to cultivate a far more culture of criticism. You know, critique is now considered hate mm. or criticism. Mm. You know, you can't even share a platform with someone that thinks differently to you. I don't think that that's acceptable. I think that we need to cultivate a culture of criticism where debate and discussion and these difficult ideas become embedded into our daily lives. I think that that would really, I think, raise the level of consciousness, political consciousness, but also help people to recognise that, you know, you don't necessarily have moral superiority. You know, there are reasons why we all think differently. Um and we all can contribute in this open environment to be able to create solutions together and negotiate change. So that from the bottom up, I would love to see that far more in schools, far more critical um, and deep intellectual engagement to embed that kind of culture of, of tolerance and mutual understanding and deep kind of rigorous intellectual debate in order to um, foster genuine, meaningful intellectual diversity, not just kind of diversity of colour. What about on the individual level? You talk about agency, mm. responsibility. These are all words that don't mean much to many mm. people. They're just, you know. So what are you talking about? So so I think that I'm really interested in if we all as individuals cultivated um, as much as we can as a sense that we could actually achieve and did everything that we as individuals first could do to make our lives better. I think that that, that would completely transform our society. Mm. I think that we there is an automatic response to assume and blame external factors. And sometimes, obviously, there are external factors that play a part. But as I've seen with my own life and my own family, who in many ways came from nothing in Britain and were able to transform their life. There is clearly a potential within all of us to be able to do something different, to be able to shape our future and shape our reality. And I think that, that that's that kind of deep, reflective and internal work, exposing ourselves to different ideas, seeing how we feel and respond to these different ideas, you know, get, creating a more coherent and refined argument. And, and that's ultimately, you know, how you develop a sense of personal independence and personal freedom. I, you know, we, we live in a culture that's very, that uses the word safety a lot. You know, you hear it on campus, a safe space. We need to be safe for students. That We need risk. We need to be braver. We need to be more courageous. These are the types of values I think we should be prioritizing and, and kind of elevating in our society. Not safety, not risk aversion, not kind of um, limiting our surroundings to our echo chamber. I think that's how we really um, start to create an environment where we think outside the box, innovate and, and kind of move beyond these very limiting constraints. And so you've graduated university not, not long ago, and you've touched on the campus and university culture a lot. How much responsibility do universities need to take for the current climate that we find ourselves in? I think a huge responsibility. I think for a long time, people thought that, you know, it was just these fringe students being kind of a bit zealot, um, being zealots, and it didn't really mean anything or fade out. But actually, that's not what's happened. We've seen it with the New York Times, for example, 
um, the I think it's the opinion editor has been forced to resign for platforming a Republican defending Donald Trump because all of these new liberal woke um, young people are kind of forcing um, the, the the magazine to completely change its culture. So what has happened is these students that um, and academics obviously um, have now obviously moved into everyday life and are now transforming the institutions. We've seen it with you know this whole situation with J.K. Rowling. So I think that the academics and that kind of limiting um, academic um, climate, which is in many ways the brain of our society, universities, that naturally then permeates as the educated class then become the elite, the cultural and media elite. And so I think that that has a really big part to play. And I hope that, um, you know, going forward, universities wake up. I think now with COVID-19, they're, they're facing a really huge funding gap and a funding vacuum. So I think that this is the climate now for us to actually make some significant changes, but it can go either way. I really think so. And it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We have just one more question for you. And it's the one we always finish with, which is what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? As I I guess I've touched upon it a little bit um, already, I think it is personal responsibility. I think that we are very quick to blame external factors for our situation and absolutely there is a role to play for that but I would really love to see far more people um, taking responsibility for their life shaping themselves as individuals and seeing how far they can go within themselves as an individual then within their families and communities and going beyond that not just automatically going for shaping society at large. She's saying clean your room. (laughs) (laughs) Put your shoulders back. Go out into the world. Look the other person in the eye and have some bloody backbone. (laughs) But I think, but that's it, isn't it? Like it's about recognizing that, of course, external factors can and will affect your life and it's inevitable and we all get ill and and Mm. all kinds of things will happen. But if you take responsibility for your part, Mm. you'll find that 90% of the things you are unhappy with can be resolved through your own work, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm. Well, it's great to have someone like you very young and spreading that message to people. We really appreciate coming on the show. And our viewers will as well. So thanks very much. Uh, where can people follow you and your work? And what can people do to support the Free Speech Union as well? Yeah, just sign up to freespeechunion.org. But you can follow me on Twitter, Anaya Flarin, or my website, anayafalarin.com. Thanks very much. And thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you very soon with another interview or a live stream. Make sure if you haven't checked out one of the live streams, they're very funny, uh, especially when I'm on. Yeah, absolutely. And he's in no way a narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) We will see you soon, guys. Take care. And thank you very much for watching or listening. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.